So we're spending, uh, this is the second of three weeks in the little book in the Minor Prophets called Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on which way you want to put the accent. Um, and like I said, we're spending three weeks on this little three-chapter book, one of the Minor Prophets who has a very major message. And last week we looked at the way in which Habakkuk works with a question and an answerable question, the question of the problem of evil. And we saw how he, he ends not with an answer, but with a, a dedication to wait, a dedication to watch, to climb to the watchtower and, and watch and, and wait to see what God might reveal to him, because he, he has no answer after this conversation with God, where God doesn't explain what God is doing, just tells Habakkuk to be faithful. He ends not with an answer, but climbing to that watchtower and choosing to hold on in, in faithfulness to the God who has said, I'm holding on to you. And one of the things that attracted me to Habakkuk during this last year of my work among you as preacher is that this book had such a profound impact on me early in, in my life as a pastor, actually while I was still in seminary. And I came across a book about the book. It's like I say, seminary is a lot about reading the people who read the people and reading books about the books and trusting in the work of those who know a heck of a lot more Greek and Hebrew and history than you do uh, to tell you something about a text. And that's the way this book functioned in my life. It's by the man who at the time was the professor of Old Testament at Pittsburgh Seminary, Presbyterian Seminary in, in Pittsburgh. His name is Donald Gowan, and it's called The Triumph of Faith in, in Habakkuk. And he gives a, a little synopsis of the, the first section of Habakkuk that I want to read to you that was just profound to me. He's, he says, uh, in describing the situation I said where God doesn't give Habakkuk an answer, but Habakkuk resolves to wait, he says this, there is no intellectual or hypothetical answer to the problem of evil. It can only be lived, but it can be lived only if it is believed that part of it, especially where Habakkuk decides that the just shall live by faith and that he will be faithful. It does not yet explain how evil can exist in God's good world. It accepts the fact that evil is here and we suffer from it, but it knows for a certainty that this is nevertheless the realm ruled over by God of justice because of the experience of being able to live in a world where evil exists and not be beaten by it. As Raymond Calkins wrote, again, here's where Gowan reads someone who reads, and uh, as Raymond Calkins wrote, this verse, the just shall live by faith, is a summons from speculation to action, from questioning to conduct, from brooding to duty. It's definitely an answer about how we live our lives, even if it isn't an answer to that theoretical question that the problem of evil posts. And today, in chapter 2, what Habakkuk does at the, in the second part of chapter 2 is basically give the assurance that tyranny will not have the last word. 
that it will be worth the wait. It will be worth climbing to that watchtower. It will be worth writing the vision so that one who's running can read it. That vision that Habakkuk is being invited to write down and to preach, the vision that God is inviting him to communicate to the people. And the form in which he communicates the first part of that vision, the first part of that vision is that tyranny cannot last is in the form of, of a funeral dirge. But it's not just a funeral dirge, it's a parody of a funeral dirge. It's kind of dancing on the grave of the oppressor, if you will. It's the Wizard of Oz, ding dong, the witch is dead kind of thing, okay? So think of the munchkins dancing around. Uh, this is the kind of parody that's going on here. It's that Babylon can't last, the Chaldeans ultimately won't win the witch, uh, wicked witch is, is dead. And so it's, it's the exposition of the truth that tyrannical empires rise and fall, and not just Babylon, but all tyrannical empires are ultimately unsustainable. And if you're a reader of history, you know that empires rise and fall. But it's funny when we're in the midst of an empire that where we're in charge, it's really hard to remember that they fall. <laughs> And so Habakkuk sings this taunt song, and it's introduced by verses four and five. And I know I'm getting very teachy here, but it's very important that you understand this. Otherwise, you read it as if it's addressed to you, and it's, it's sort of addressed to you, but it's more addressed to tyranny and evil in, in general. But in verses four and five, just to rehearse what we read last week, Habakkuk says, look at the proud. Uh, this is God's word that he's reporting. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as Sheol. And like death, they never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect peoples as their own. And so as you look at this text, especially that phrase, they open their throats wide as Sheol, like death they never have enough. In other words, they, they choke on the things that they consume. And the very things that they're insatiable for ultimately kill them and they eat themselves to death is what that line means. Sheol is the place of the dead. And so this line sets up the four stanza death dirge parody that Habakkuk then sings. So verse six, I'm going to read verse six through the end of the chapter, verse 20. Shall not everyone taunt such people with mocking riddles and say about them, alas, for you who heap up what is not your own, how long will you load yourselves with goods taken in pledge? Will not your own creditors suddenly rise and those who make you tremble wake up? Then you will be booty for them because you have plundered many nations. All that survive of the peoples shall plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who live in them. Alas, for you who get evil gain for your house, setting your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. 
Alas, for you who build a town by bloodshed and found a city on iniquity, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor only to feed the flames and nations weary themselves for nothing? But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Alas, for you who make your neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath until they are drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will be sated with contempt instead of glory. Drink, you yourself, and stagger. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and shame will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of the animals will terrify you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. What use is an idol? Once its maker has shaped it, a cast image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in what has been made, though the product is only an idol that cannot speak. Alas, for you who say to the wood, wake up, to the silent stone, rouse yourself. Can it teach? See, it's gold and silver plated, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Lord, take us into this assurance of the limits of our own idolatries and help us to see above all else what it is that lasts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If there was going to be a list of frequently asked questions that was asked of pastors that I've heard for, you know, over the years that I've been in pastoral ministry, one of the questions close to the top would be the pastoral conversation that I would have with people quite often, where the occasion of the conversation was someone coming to me saying, is such and such a sin? In other words, asking me to kind of make a judicial ruling on a particular behavior and what the Bible says about that behavior and whether or not it's good or evil, good or bad. And it's almost as if folks come asking me to be their sort of biblical legal advisor, that um, they come with kind of a tacit question that says, have I screwed up here or I have I done something to make God mad? Or maybe they come with another question that's pre-thinking uh, the behavior and saying, if I did this, would I make God mad? <laughs> and the, the problem with this question is that it misses the point and fails to fully comprehend the way that the Bible describes sin. Because sin is not merely the collection of my sins. It's not just a list of the wrong things that we can do. Sin is, as the Bible describes it, missing the mark. It's a more general and it's a, it's a big term that encompasses behaviors but doesn't restrict itself simply to our behaviors and whether or not we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It has to do also with the way we're just looking at life. 
It's not just screwing up by missing the bullseye when we miss the mark, because it's an archery term that that word sin uh, is drawn from. It's not just missing the bullseye. It's really about taking aim at an entirely different target. When we view sin in this way, it kind of also brings about a a misapprehension of of the nature of God and and who God is and how God reacts to our sin. It's a view of sin that has God about the business of maybe deploying a heavenly host who flit about the earth uh, keeping track of all of the right and wrong things that we've done so that uh, an appropriate list, you know, a a group of heavenly hosts who are actually kind of accountants, who kind of keep a ledger of all of the right and the wrong things that we have done, and that can be weighed on a balance scale upon that moment where we are either getting in to or being sent away from the gates of, of heaven. But sin is really a word that describes a choice that we make, sometimes almost inadvertently, a choice that we make to ignore God. To aim our attention and energy at something or someone other than God and to turn that something or someone effectively into our God. It's why the first two commandments are something we need to pay attention to, that God says, first of all, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make a graven image. In other words, you can do that, but it won't benefit you. (laughs) Because I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I'm the God who created you. So why bother with creating another God? It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans 1, where he describes sin in this way. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's a great description of idolatry. It's exactly what Habakkuk says When in chapter 1, God says of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, says they worship their own might. They literally bow down to their implements of war and expect them to save them. Idolatry is about creating something and then bowing down to it as if it's a God and expecting it to save us. It's about being controlled by the things that we create. That's what idolatry is. And sin is essentially an idolatry of self. The net effect of this is essentially that we become bond slaves to the things that we have created. And that's the irony of the whole thing, that instead of worshiping the God who has created us and giving thanks, we become slaves to the things that we have created. And so the net effect of idolatry is trying to keep the requirements of the things that we have created and all the while ignore the relationship with the God who made us for relationship with himself. It's absolutely absurd. 
Idolatry imposes requirements, but what God invites us to is to rest in the relationship that he made us to enjoy. And I think chapters one and two of Habakkuk give a description of the effects of this pursuit of the things that we have created and expecting them to save us. Chapter one is really how this investment in self and how this worship of our own might creates an unrelenting quest for acquisition of more. And that's, if you go back and read chapter one, that's all all that that God and Habakkuk both are saying about the, the Chaldean armies is that they're just voraciously hungry to consume the other nations. Their throats as wide as Sheol, consuming everything in sight. And chapter two is how this unrelenting quest cannot last. And that's what we read today. It ultimately burns out and it's ultimately extinguished by someone with more power and more energy. And so as we read that taunt song that you can tell each of the stanzas, they begin with the word alas, or some translations say woe, but the Hebrew word is hoy, which is probably where the Yiddish comes from, hoy vey, hoy vey, you know. <laughs> it's meant to be said in mourning, but it's said as almost a, a derisive way here, you know, woe, woe to you, alas, you've pursued what does not profit. You've spent your money, as Isaiah says, on that which is not bread. And so the taunt song comes, and part of the vision that Habakkuk writes after God has invited him to write the vision, part of the vision he writes is the reminder to people that one day someone will be dancing on the grave of the tyrants who oppress you. And so there are these four stanzas, four things that the tyrant did to get his power. And then in each of the stanzas, there's also a reminder of the four ways that it will be reversed. In verses six through eight, you heap up what is not your own. You, you got rich on other people's debts. But one day a creditor will come after you and the ones you have plundered will plunder you. Verses nine through 11, you have used your wealth to build huge houses on high hills, thinking your wealth can keep you safe. But no house is fully safe and unassailable and you are cut off and alone and the house itself, you will find, will one day cry out with a, a kind of grief-filled cry against you. Then verses 12 through 14, you have built your wealth on bloodshed and the oppression of the poor, but you've wearied yourself for nothing because God will last and the effects of your tyranny won't last. And then in verses 15 through 17, you have profited from and exploited and ruined your victims by making them drunk. And you've 
gazed on their nakedness, which is a code phrase for, for shame. You've inflicted shame. But one day, someone will be gazing on your nakedness when you are stripped of all of your power. But the risk of doing a book review, I want to refer one more time to this book. Like I said, it's the way I discovered Habakkuk by reading the person who had read and, and studied Habakkuk. And I, I want to refer to this book again because he quotes from another commentator in Habakkuk and who uses the phrase that tyranny is suicide. His name is George Adam Smith. Gowan's kind of discussing the irony tragedy of history, thinking that power and tyranny will win the day, but tyranny ultimately is, is an act of suicide. Tyranny initially looks like it will win the day and sometimes holds on to power for a very long time and temporarily seems to completely displace and maybe even destroy the good. But ultimately, it doesn't displace God. It creates two kinds of atheism. And this is the part in the book that Gowan goes over with George Adam Smith. He says it, it creates two kinds of atheism, tyranny does. An atheism first of force. The powerful thinking that they are gods and that more power will enable them to rule the world. And that creates another kind of atheism, an atheism of fear, where the oppressed start believing that God himself has been defeated and stop trusting or believing in God to bring about the good because all evidence seems to suggest just the opposite. But what Habakkuk is saying is that tyranny is suicide. Tyranny is the choice of the tyrant to kill himself. Because tyrants who have succumbed to the atheism of force ultimately lose their power and end up, quite frankly and poignantly, like Hitler, with a self-inflicted hole in his skull, administered by a bullet in a burned-out bunker, isolated and insignificant and alone. Yet the story is not as dark for those who have danced with or succumbed to the atheism of fear. Because some choose to take Habakkuk's road. Some of those who are tempted to dance with that atheism of fear, some choose to believe that oppression is not the last word. That there is something bigger than their fear or the power of their fear that makes them want to just be paralyzed and do nothing. Because if they choose to look behind the facade of power, the facade of power that the, the tyrant wears and see the one who is more powerful and choose to trust that one who made them, rather than fearing the ones who could take their lives and have made themselves more powerful for a time than God and so displaced God, if they can do that, 
if they can remain faithful, then a different perspective exists. And that's what Habakkuk is trying to root us in. And so in verses 16 through 20, at the end, he, he sums up, excuse me, 18 through, through 20. What use is an idol? Once its maker has shaped it, a cast image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in what he has made, though the product is only an idol and cannot speak. Alas for you who say to the wood, wake up, to the silent stone, rouse yourself. Can it teach? Behold, it's nothing more than gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. There is no spirit in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and let all the earth keep silence before him. In many ways, it's the same ending as our text from last week. Look to God, wait, watch, climb to the tower, and listen. It's no answer to the problem of evil, but it is a summons from speculation to action from questioning to conduct, and from brooding to duty. Let's pray. By your spirit, O oh God, help us to live with attention and to look forward with a sense of anticipation that you are God, you are our creator, and we are the sheep of your pasture. So teach us what it means to live in expectancy. Teach us to live into the vision of your power and your love, to rest in your arms, and so engage our world in the confidence that you are at work, keeping us in your care and inviting us to an abundant life. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.